Hi, this is John Lodge of the Moody Blues, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream on the Robert Miller Podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 192 countries. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is international superstar Gilbert O'Sullivan, who burst upon the musical scene in 1972 with his massive hit Alone Again Naturally. It was nominated for two Grammys. He had sales of over 10 million units that year, making him the top star of 1972. And he followed this up with two more huge hits, Claire and Get Down. And he continues to write and perform. And he's got a new album out now called Driven. And we'll talk about all of this. And as I like to do with all of my musician guests in the middle of this episode, we are going to do a song fest where we've picked out a handful of Gilbert's great songs and we'll listen to them and we'll talk about them. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of each episode. And I try to make the song somehow relate to my guest or the subject matter. And in this instance, the song that I've chosen is a song that I wrote called 1972. It's from the album Trippin' by my band Project Grand Slam. This is an album that went to number one on Billboard. And I chose this song because in the song, I tried to capture the feel of that year from more of a funky R&B point of view. And 1972, as I've said, happens to be Gilbert's breakthrough year. So I thought it fit. So Gilbert O'Sullivan, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. And nice to be with you, Robert. So Gilbert, 1972 must have felt for you like you were in the middle of a hurricane. I mean, all of a sudden, you opened up to the world. Tell me what it was like. Well, for me, I was pretty grounded, uh, Ron, because I, and I always envisioned being successful in the country I lived in. So I lived in England. I was looking for success only in the UK, maybe Europe. I had no idea that I, I could be a success in America, Japan, Australia, those kind of places. Well, you screwed up because you were an international success. <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but it didn't, I, I didn't let it sort of rule me in, in the sense that I was really happy with what was what was taking place, but I was pretty grounded. My feet were firmly on the ground. It was nice to have that success and, and that, you know, that people liked my music that much and stuff, particularly in America. It's a huge success there. So I was, you know, very pleased with it, but uh, I didn't let it go to my head. Good for you. There's so many guys, of course, that let it go to their head or they got in trouble in other ways, but that didn't happen to you. So congratulations to you. And Alone Again, Naturally, was just a massive hit. In the U.S., I think it was number one for six weeks or something like that. And it was a hit all around the world. Did you tour behind that record, or were you still based in the U.K. at that time? So, of course, my home was in the U.K., and, and I lived on an estate close to my manager's home in Weybridge in Surrey, Surrey Belt. But um, 
I mean, it, it's, I didn't start touring until two, after two years of success. The first success was 1970 with Nothing Rhyme, big success in Europe, Australia, and not in America. And so I had other hits in the UK and Europe up to 72 when things took off in America. So it was, it was around 72 that my first concert, which is unusual. Normally your first success, you're out there touring. Right. Me, I, I, didn't, I didn't come out of a touring background. I came out of a writing background. So was that your choice not to tour initially or was that your management or record company or what? I, it was a combination of both because knowing how important it was to write songs, you could snip over to Europe, do a TV and come back within a couple of days. I see. Touring would take up a lot of time. So, so Gordon Mills was good in that respect because he knew how important the writing was. So he made sure that we would wait until the appropriate time before we start touring. Once you start touring, then a lot of things get pushed to one side. Yeah, I was very lucky in that. I was pleased that I was able to spend that much time at home. I'm a pretty home bird anyway. I like being at home. I'm, I don't drive and I like to walk and I like to stay uh, within the home environment. So that's always been in me. So it suited me very much that, that uh, I didn't have to go touring. In. I like the fact that you came from what I'll call a singer songwriter kind of background. Mm. And at that time in the world, there were a number of artists like yourself that, that had that singer-songwriter orientation. Who were the guys that you admired back then? In the, well, I mean, obviously in the beginning, uh, it was the Beatles and Bob Dylan, two major influences for me. Lennon and McCartney because of the songwriting. Okay. Dylan because of his voice, as well as his great gift for songwriting and stuff. I mean, he's a fantastic uh, writer. So those are the major influences. And then pop music, radio. Radio was a huge influence because it's on the radio, you get to hear new material and stuff. And you need to be hearing melodic stuff to be able to write melodies. You can't be expected to write melodies if you're not listening to what are good melodies getting into your head. That's true. You know, because we don't write music. We're, we come from most singer, most writers from the Lennon McCartney right through to the current day. We don't write music. We're able to do it through a love of music. It's that thing of that, that we, we love music so much it generates something in us, which then translate into us, a few of us being able to, to write songs. And you're, you're correct also that really hit songs are all about the melody, or at least in the first instance, they're about the melody. And what, what disappoints me so much about a lot of the music today is that I don't hear melody the same way that we heard melody in the era that you came up in. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, I think, well, I've made the point that I'm very conscious of my contemporaries, the likes of McCartney, the likes of Paul Simon, Randy Newman and stuff. What I tend to find is that if I buy a Paul Simon album now, the production will be fantastic. The musicianship will be fantastic. And Paul, to his credit, his lyrics will be as good as ever. But melodically, it's losing it a bit. You can't say anything on a current album would equate with Sound of Silence or to those earlier great melodic tunes that, that he wrote. And so that's a risk, that's a danger that I try really hard to avoid. So I work extra hard to, to maintain a good, because w without the melody, there's no point, writing, in my opinion, it's no good coming up with a good lyric if it doesn't have an equally good melody to go with it. I'm not one of those writers who feels that if it's a good lyric, it doesn't have to be a good melody. No, no, not at all. It needs to be as good. I'm with you on that. I totally agree with you. I think melody is the key to the whole thing. And you know, what's interesting, a lot of the guys that you're referring to, including Paul Simon, and I think Paul Simon is just one of the greats of the rock era. 
his songwriting, his guitar playing, everything about him. But if you look back, you kind of see that a lot of the guys had a certain era where they were at their most creative. And you can almost measure it. You know, there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. Not to say that they're not creative any longer, but it's awfully hard to maintain a career over decades. Wouldn't you agree? I think, yeah, but I think you can put it down to a couple of things. One of them being that, that you lose the interest. In other words, when you start writing, again, going back to what I said about why we're able to do it, it's because of what we hear on the radio, the records we buy, listening to it. That's, that's the, what drives us to be able to write. If you lose that interest, if you don't like what you hear on the radio, you're not buying as much product, you're not searching for good melodic stuff, then perhaps you'll lose it yourself. And I think that's part of the problem. If you maintain the ability to listen to what's going on today. In other words, you can't be a contemporary writer, in my opinion, if you don't like what's going on today. And what's going on today, you'll get good stuff coming out of it. I mean, for example, if I listen to a rap record by a Jay-Z or something like that, I may not get much melodically, but there's production values, which are very interesting, that take place on those kind of records. So again, you, there's things that you can learn from that. But in search of melody, I go right back to the beginning of the 20th century. I go back to Stephen Foster. And Stephen Foster, for me, is the first songwriter of the 20th century. He's the one that influenced Irving Berlin. And he wrote, you know, I Dream of Jeannie with a Light Brown Hair, beautiful melodies and stuff. So I, I'll go back that far in search of melodies to be influenced, to help me, hopefully, to, to write melodies myself. You know, you mentioned Irving Berlin, and I've talked about this before. Most people don't know Irving Berlin, of course, was an immigrant from Russia, had no training in music whatsoever played the piano, but only played the piano in the key of F sharp, yeah, okay, which is so crazy. And yet, with, with that kind of background, which was not a musical background, he wrote some of the greatest melodies and some of the greatest songs in the history of the world. God bless America. An interesting thing on that front, because his piano was an upright piano, you can drop the tone, you can move it around. What, what's the, I think the word used for it? Um, transpose, are you transpose. saying that? Yeah, so you can do it on an on a upright piano. And he did, because he could only play, as you say, in one key. I have the only grand piano that goes from concert pitch to a semitone below concert pitch. Really? Yeah, I got Bluthner to make it for me. Because I started writing songs on very cheap pianos, and I have a limited vocal range. So going from concert pitch to a semitone down is a big thing for me. And I found when I went to, to TV studios to play one of my songs, it was in concert pitch. And I couldn't understand why it felt higher in my voice <laughs> than when I was at home. And then I realized it's because my pianos were, were detuned. So I've always had that in me. So all my pianos, the piano I write on is, is permanently a semitone below concert pitch. It's a concert grand, but it's permanently a semitone. The piano for the studio here, the Bluthner, they made it for me and it has a lever. And it goes from concert pitch, you pull the lever and it drops to a semitone. Isn't that great? Who would want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it works for you. That's the thing that counts. <laughs> now, I'm interested, the songs that, that made your career back then, and I'm talking about Alone Again and, and then Claire, they were very sensitive, kind of introspective type of songs. And I think they fit with the, the feeling, the mode of that era. Did you set out to write in that fashion or was that just what came out of you? Yeah, just what comes out. I mean, got to be, you know, analyzing what you do, how you do it, why you do it, dangerous. Just do it. If you're good at it, just do it. Blinkers on, 
just get on with the craft and stuff. The nice thing about Claire was, Claire was one of the few songs written about a real subject. She was my manager's daughter. She was, I used to babysit for them and Claire would be the one getting up in the middle of the night and stuff. And, you know, I used to go up to their house and she'd run up to me, call me Uncle Ray and stuff. So the affection was there. And the song was written as a thank you to Gordon Mills, my manager, and his wife, Joe, who used to cook meals for me. And of course, the nice thing on the record is that Gordon plays the harmonica in the solo. And it's Claire who you hear laughing at the end. So there was something really nice about that record. And, he, and a huge success. Isn't that interesting? I'm very proud of it. Claire is very proud of it because I still keep in touch with her. She has two children of her own. And it's a very important thing for her too. Fantastic. That's great. Now, Gordon Mills, who was your manager, I know he was the manager also of Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck. You were kind of a different artist for him. Am I right or wrong? <laughs> that, that goes without saying. When I sent him pictures of me dressed up in a Charlie Chaplin jacket and cap and boots with a pudding basin haircut and hobnail boots, you couldn't get more different <laughs> Tom Jones. And he was, I sent him my tape uh, because I figured what had happened then was that for two years with CBS and other record company, I was being represented by people who weren't really doing much for me. So I figured I needed a well-known manager, somebody internationally. And Gordon Mills was top of the list. And so, so I sent him my tape with a few songs on it and uh, pictures. And of course, he, when he saw the pictures, he, his secretary said he threw it in the bin. <laughs> later on, later on uh, he retrieved the tape. And his wife fell in love with those songs. And he did. And then that's how I met him. I went, I was invited to his home. So you were lucky that somebody took it out of the, the round file, huh? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's, that's how it goes. I mean, it, it, um, I like to think that if, if he hadn't have done that, I'd have, you know, I'd have battled on. I'd have, by hook or by crook, I would have made my mark. It's so interesting how the world works in mysterious ways, okay? You send something to Gordon Mills, he, he threw it away and yet it came back and he became your, your manager. And I think again about the Beatles, we've talked about them, of course, 17 record labels passed on them. Think what those guys must have felt like that they passed on a band like that. Absolutely. And the faith that, I mean, it's, it's, that's, I mean, the great thing about the unpredictability of our business is, is kind of interesting, I find. Nothing is pretty, you can't guarantee a hit. You know, you can be the biggest artist in the world and you can fail. You can put out something you think is the best record you've ever made and it can die. I think that's kind of healthy in a way. <laughs> but you should know these things. What you should know is that if you're a writer, you write a good song, that's success. No question about that. Right. That's the key. That's the success that you're after. Anything after that, particularly if you make a record, of course, that, that's great too. But after that, it's out of your hands. Don't worry about it. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, just move on. Very good advice. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. You're listening to my new single, The Fall of Winter, a collaboration with legendary rocker Jim Peterick from the Ides of March and formerly with Survivor and featuring renowned guitarist Elliot Randall of Steely Dan fame and keyboard player Tony Carey. The reviewers have called The Fall of Winter a triumph and flexes real rock muscles. The track is available now for streaming on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms, and also for download at the pgsstore.com. And you must check out the lyric video of the song on YouTube. The show notes have all the links. 
thanks for listening and keep on rocking. All right, let's go to the second half of this interview. We're now playing underneath my voice, your first massive international hit, Alone Again Naturally. I'm not feeling any less I promise myself to treat myself and visit a nearby town. I'm climbing to the top. We'll throw myself off in an effort to make clear to who ever what it's like when you're shattered left standing in the lurch at a church where people are saying, my God, that's tough. She stood him up. No point in us remaining. We may as well go home as I did on my own alone again, naturally. Tell us your impressions. Tell us your thoughts about that all these years later. Well, I mean, what I find interesting is, is the covers I get of it these days bring it back to me in the sense that when Neil Diamond, who did a lovely version of it, he sent me a letter uh, hoping I'd like the version, which I thought was really nice. And then you get Dan Kral and Michael Bublé covering it. You get, going right back, Nina Simone, Sarah Vaughan, classic singers who've recorded it. So that all, I mean, that, that's, you know, as a compliment to you, as a song, I've always said if the postman sings it, that's a compliment to you. <laughs> if the postman records it, that's a compliment to you. But the likes of those people who've done your song, there's something very special about that. Uh, historically, I mean, I wrote the song, I was happy with it, but I didn't see it any more different to other songs I was writing. I was pleased with it and, and hoped it would uh, be something we'd record and could be successful. But that's a good thing. You don't want to know those things. God forbid you should know what was going to be a success because you'd be looking for that every time you wrote another song. You shouldn't know. It should be an element of, you know, if it happens, it happens. Just, just be, as I said a while ago, just be happy with the song. You're pleased with it. And then hope for the best when it's uh, recorded. So how did it happen? What was the spark that put this thing through the roof? Uh, a radio station in the States. Just one radio station. It's a cliche to say that because you hear it said for quite a few records, but it's true. Uh, one radio station picked up on it and then played it and played it and played it and it grew from there. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, you can go right back to Elvis because, you know, how did Elvis get started and stuff? It was, you know, they did a playful version of, of those country hits and producers said, you know, the producer said, wow, let's put that out. And again, it was just a local radio station and it took off. Do you think something like that could happen today? I mean, it's such a different world. Well, I don't know, Dave. How it happens today is that you or I, if we're unknown people, uh, you have a guitar and you, you write a song, you can go online, you can be filmed in your bedroom and you can put it online. And before you know it, there's people out there looking for new artists. So you can be one of those lucky people that get picked up on. And before you know it, TikTok or something or other. So there are, there, it's interesting how, the, the what's available to you is, is actually really beneficial these days compared to how it was in our day. It was very difficult in our day. You needed a record company to get interested in you before you could ever get to make a record. And I think now you can spend no money at all, just get a friend to film you singing your song, put it up online. And before you know it, it can happen. You can be picked on by a, somebody from a record company who hears it, who sees it. And before you know it, uh, you can take off. So that's one of the things today, that I, which I think is a positive. It is possible in today's market, but it's kind of like getting hit by lightning. Okay, there's so much noise, 
and other competition out there. No question. But, you know, if it happens, great. Every once in a while, you hear about those success stories. Mm. All right, let's go to the second one, which is Claire. I knew in my heart that we were friends. It had to be so. Now, you told us the background of who it was written for. Tell us a little bit more about that record. It came out after Alone Again. What are your impressions now about that? Well, again, as I said to you, that I was happy to be able to write it as a, as a thank you to Gordon and his wife um, for what they had done for me. And as I say, I babysat for them. So I, 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 you know, I had a lot of affection for Claire as a young girl. And so it's, it becomes a very special record. It always was. And the song, I really like the song. I like the middle section. I like going off on a tangent. It's very typical of me in the middle section to go off and then, then try and find my way back to the verse and stuff. I, it's interesting when you're writing something. I like middle eights because you can do that. You can wander off. Right. And then, but make sure that when you wander off, you find a way back. That you get back, exactly. So the middle of Claire, the solo, I like the way it goes into uh, another area and then it finds its way back to complete the song. Did your record company or your management back then, you know, give you direction about what you needed to have as the follow-up to Alone Again? No, it didn't work like that because my first success in England was Nothing Rhymed. And if while in the course of my duty I perform an unfortunate big success in England and in Europe in Holland, it was number one for about 10 weeks. And so when it came to, when that was over, because it was a ballad, and then the next single, Gordon said to me, what have you got? And, and, you know, it was one of those situations. It wasn't a board meeting where a dozen people decide you've done a ballad, it must be another ballad because blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, I've got this rock song called Underneath the Blanket Go and stuff. And I said, you know, he said, okay, let's do that. And it was a minor hit. I could have been a one hit wonder. But, uh, but that's how it was. And then the, the third single uh, was a big hit. So it was just a question of what I came up with. And, uh, and I, I liked that. There was no kind of uh, board meeting about what should be taking place. That's nice to hear because there really are so many instances where somebody or some group has a hit. And then the next one is almost identical to the first one because somebody was pushing them in that direction. Yeah, I think that went on more in the past, uh, Robert, than, than in now. I think it's better now. But in those days, the idea of sounding like your first hit was, was a popular, you know, because you know, the argument was that, well, they, the sound of your first record, stick to that, keep that. Keep exactly. That, you know, so today you get everything you get. You name it, you get it today. 
All right, so your next big, big hit was Get Down, which was a different sound for you. us about that one well, it's just a good pop good little good little pop song nothing serious on the lyric front uh easy session to do it i had laurie holloway my, who was uh engelbert's arranger he played electric piano on it no guitars but there was meant to be a guitar player but he didn't turn up or he was delayed <laughs> he just didn't so, show up yeah yeah so that so if you hear the record it's just my on, me on piano a laurie on electric piano bass and drums so we compensated for the lack of a solo uh, but just I just stuck in another verse. I really good, and it was it was in the early days. Remember quad? Remember quad? Quad sound? Sure. But that was the first time we heard quad. The speakers in the front, two speakers at the back. I mean, get down sounded great on that. <laughs> well, a really happy record to do. And even now, when we do it on stage with just myself and my guitar player, we get them. We get everybody moving around. So it's a, a popular song on stage it's, yeah it's a great song it, it had that the, the right beat the right feel the right everything yeah good for you all right so let's talk a little bit about the new album that you've got and i the, the first single that i've listened to and i saw the video is take love that you did a duet with kt tunstall i think it's a terrific song Tell us a little bit about how that came about, the new album, that single, and your relationship with uh, her. Well, it came about because, you know, the, the album was recorded over five days. We did 14 songs. Great musicians who I hadn't met before the, the session started. That's the interesting thing, making this record. That's how I've worked on the last three albums. I, I, I picked the producer. I use a different producer each time because it's the same singer. It's the same songwriter. So the good thing a new producer brings is that different aspect to the previous one. And so... Musicians, I mean, I let the producer pick the musicians. So there's two guitars, bass and drums and an organ. And they, they meet me for the first time in the studio. They stand around the piano. I play the first song. Rhythmically, I'm playing it the way, you know, the feel of it. So and they go back to their chairs. We rehearse it a few times. And then we take it. The light comes on and we take it. It isn't rocket science. That's how it works. And Take Love was just one of those. It was just a just fun track to do. And we felt when it was recorded, that uh, with duets being kind of the, the in thing at the moment, who would we approach for that? So we felt KT was because she had a success with the record a few years back called Suddenly I See.
And so there's a, a similar feel to Take Love. So that's who we, we, we approached, sent it to her. She loved the track. She lives in California, so she did her vocal there. And we told her just, you know, we're not going to restrict you what you want, how you want to sing it. Just go for it. So it's her harmonies on it. And it just rocks. It's just, just a fun track. And the video was the first time I met her. She came to London and we, did, we spent the day doing the video. So it was a really nice, a happy experience. Isn't that nice to hear? You know, in a sense, what you just described is kind of a throwback in so many respects. I've had several top studio musicians on the podcast, and they describe what it was like, particularly back in the day in the 60s and 70s, how an artist like Aretha would come into the studio. There'd be a whole group of session musicians and they would just kind of on the spot figure out each song. She'd play a little bit of it and they'd just do it. And I think over time, you got away from that. You know, there, there's not the same kind of session uh, group that there used to be in the studio. But it's nice to hear that you were able to do it in that fashion on this album. Yeah, I mean, you were in an era. We got into an era where the drum machine would take a week, then the guitar would take another week, and then the bass would take a week after that. <laughs> Six months later, you might be doing the vocals. Oh, come on, I mean, it's just, right. just horrendous and stuff. No, it's great. Just like, I mean, if you have good musicians, the joy of recording, it doesn't mean that it's a live. You're not setting out to make a live recording. It's just a live way of doing things. You're recording it correctly. The producer's up there with the engineer to make sure everything is recorded as good as it can be. But the feel of the tracks you're doing is all about you, I mean, I, I become a member of the band. I mean, they haven't met me before, and yet I'm the piano player, and I'm working with them. I'm I'm the new member. <laughs> I'm the new member playing my my own song. You're the new member, and you're the guy that's paying them too. Yes. <laughs> well, that's interesting, and you know, you just sparked a memory in me. There's a very famous story about how Al Cooper wandered into. The, uh, the Dylan thing, right? The, right, exactly. Bob Dylan doing Like a Rolling Stone, I think it was. Yeah, he hung about. He just wandered into the studio and started to play this great little lick on the on the keyboard. And uh, Dylan said, let's keep it. And it became one of the most important things on the record. That's exactly right. Well, that's the magic. See, that's the great thing about our business, Robert, is things like that that happen like that. You can't explain them, but it's wonderful how they... I think only in our business do things like that happen, where a record can... Look, think of Free, the band Free, all right now. They were making an album. They were serious musicians and rocking away. And they had half an hour left of the session. Caustic, you know, the studio's been booked, expensive. Just, to, just for fun. All right, they play the rip, boom, boom, boom. Before you know it, it becomes their biggest success. Right. It's absolute magic. I love it. But there's an apocryphal moment that I have to mention. I had Elliot Randall on the show as well. Fabulous guitarist. He was the guy that did the solo on Steely Dan's Reeling in the Years. Right. He, he told the story about how the first time he's in the studio and uh, they asked him to play and he hit it and he did a, the magnificent solo and the guy forgot to hit the record button. Okay. <laughs> so they had to do it again. So the rule is make sure you're recording at all times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But they're nice stories to hear. The I, I love it when, when we hear those kind of things taking place because there's so many of them, you know, going back over the years. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Fantastic mistakes. Okay. What's in the future for you now? Well, we're, we're on the road. The album comes out on the 22nd of July. 
I'm, I've just finished eight concerts in the UK. So we go back next week, we do two more. So I'll be heavily into promoting this album right up to the end of the year. And then next year, we'll be coming over to America again after doing 10 shows there recently. So we'll be back for doing some more concerts early in 2023. So that'll pretty much take up uh, the near future. After that, by the middle of 2023, I'll start thinking about, you know, getting back to that piano. And <laughs> I was going to ask, do you write constantly or only when you've got a project in mind? It, if I was looking for melodies, needing to melodies, I'll sit there. The Brill Building hits me. The nine to five discipline, clocking in at nine o'clock, sitting down with it and staying there till five o'clock, five days a week, four weeks a month, if necessary, to write melodies. If you write a good melody, Robert, you can trunk it. Irvin Berlin did that. You can trunk it because a, melody, a good melody will survive any length of time. But a lyric, if you finish it and don't use it, uh, can become dated. Okay, I'll keep that in mind going forward. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. We have been speaking with international superstar Gilbert O'Sullivan. Gilbert, I want to wish you the best of luck with the new album and with everything else that you're doing. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Now we're going to listen to the song that started out underneath the introduction, my song called 1972. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.